Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. I'm so glad I could actually be here with you this morning. As many of you know, uh, my, our, third, our, our second son, our third child, was born last Sunday when I was supposed to be preaching. So uh, it's a great privilege to be able to sit with you under God's word this morning. And mother and baby are doing great. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you right now would come and meet us through the preaching of your word so that we would be changed. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see Jesus more clearly and that we would be satisfied with you above all else. Do that by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Against all odds, Dick and Rick Hoyt have become pictures and models of endurance. Dick and Rick are a father and son team that has competed in over a thousand endurance events, over 70 marathons, 94 half marathons, 247 triathlons, six of which are at Ironman distances. They're just incredible. But what's unusual about this team is that Rick, the son, was born with cerebral palsy, and he's been a quadriplegic from birth. And this started in 1977 after a five-mile run in which they came in second to last with his dad pushing him in a wheelchair. The son typed out on a computer to communicate with his father, and he said, Dad, When I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. And so now at age 73 and 51, they have no plans to stop. They were a mile away from finishing the Boston Marathon, and they plan to do it again next year. What keeps them going is the father's motivation to give his son a taste of normal life. And as we think about the race of the Christian life, what keeps your motivation? What's your motivation to enable you to endure in this race. The Christian life is not like a marathon because it would be far too short and far too easy. The Christian life is much longer, requires much greater endurance. And we will all face various challenges. Perhaps a child born with spina bifida or Alzheimer's, uncertain finances, or maybe losing a spouse or declining health or a miscarriage, or sending your parents off to hospice, or a fractured marriage, or unwanted singleness. What is your motivation that keeps you going in the Christian life? 
What prevents you from quitting and abandoning Jesus? That reminder comes to us this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. And the reason this passage is so fitting for us is because Timothy is timid and he's on the brink of suffering. And Paul longs for nothing more than for Timothy to endure, to persevere. And so the main question that we're going to ask of this passage this morning as we walk through it is this. How do we endure in the Christian life? How do you and I endure in running this race of the Christian life? And this question is at the heart of Paul's letter to Timothy. In chapter 4, verse 6, Paul has his imminent death in view. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. His aim is to make sure that Timothy, his spiritual son in the faith, doesn't fall away. He says, endure, persevere, suffer like a good soldier. He doesn't want him to wander off like those in Asia who all abandoned Paul, like Phygelus and Hermogenes. And so what will you and I do to endure? What do you think of? What will you draw upon to endure? Perhaps when your house is leveled, or you're lying in the hospital, or you're just tired of trying and fighting sin, how will you and I endure in the Christian life? Paul gives us three motivations, and my hope is that by the end of this message that you and I will know without a shadow of a doubt how to endure in the Christian life. Paul gives us three motivations from the text. First is remember Jesus Christ. Second, remember the gospel's power. And third, remember God's faithfulness. So look with me in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And so this command to remember so far is a little bit odd. Jesus Christ has been mentioned seven different times in the previous chapter up to this point. So it's not as though Timothy is going to forget about Jesus. But he says, remember Jesus Christ. So why does he do that? And I think it's that he's drawing his attention to two main aspects of Jesus' nature and of his work. That he's risen from the dead and the offspring of David. And he gives us a clue that this is what he's doing. Because everywhere else in the book of 2 Timothy, the order is always Christ Jesus. Everywhere in 2 Timothy, he always mentions Christ Jesus. But in this place, he mentions Jesus Christ. So he seems to be drawing out his humanity and his divinity. And so look with me now first at risen from the dead. This phrase not only points to the factual nature of Jesus' resurrection but the results and implications of his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ reveals his lordship and the vindication of the Father. Think for a moment of all the things Jesus called himself during his earthly ministry. What things come to mind? I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the Lamb of God. I'm the Son of Man. I'm everlasting water. Everything Jesus claimed was audacious. 
For him to say he was the Lamb of God got him stoned. That he is the one. God's long-awaited Messiah. That the sacrifice foreshadowed in all of the Old Testament, Jesus was the embodiment. He was the fulfillment of that. And yet, God raised him from the dead so that he's vindicated in all that he says. He's vindicated. Catch this. Because if you or I made audacious claims about who we were, we would be proven wrong. Because then when we die, we stay dead. Whenever people make predictions about the end of the world, they make predictions. And when that date comes, they're proven wrong. There was a cult many years ago called the Heaven's Gate in San Diego. And they all donned the same Nike shoes and they all committed mass suicide. 38 people because they said the world was going to be destroyed and the only way was to be a part of this comet that was passing. But when the world kept going, they were proven wrong. But Jesus Christ, in all that he acclaimed, he's vindicated. God raised him from the dead. Liars are not raised. But when God raised him from the dead, he said, this is my son. Everything he said about himself is true. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Lamb of God. Ephesians 1, 19 says this, that God, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So not only is Jesus vindicated, but now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, above every rule, above every authority, above every power, above every dominion. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of human history. He's the climax of creation. The cross, the shadow of the cross shines back on everything that came before and shines forward to everything that will come. So when Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, he's saying, remember that he's risen from the dead. He was vindicated. Everything he claimed about himself, that he was establishing a kingdom, that he was taking away the sins of the world, that he would rule and reign, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. The second aspect of Jesus that we are to remember is that he's the offspring of David, literally the seed or the descendant. And the significance of this phrase harkens back to 2 Samuel 7, 12, where David looks at the splendor of his house, and then he looks at God's temple, which was dwelling in a tent, and he says, this isn't right. I should build God a house. And God says to him, no, you're a man of blood. You will not build me a house, but I will build you a house. And he says to him, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And in one sense, Solomon is that. He builds God a temple, but that temple is eventually torn down. But Jesus comes, and he's the ultimate offspring that establishes not a physical temple, but a spiritual temple, a spiritual people. This concept goes all the way back to Genesis 3, where there will be enmity between the serpent's offspring and Eve's offspring. So this long-awaited offspring, the descendant of Abraham and Adam and David, this long-awaited Messiah is Jesus Christ. So that's what he's drawing his attention to, that he's the offspring of David. 
all of creation is pointing towards this. He's the fulfillment of every promise, the fulfillment of every prediction in the Old Testament, every prophecy. Jesus Christ is it. And then Paul reminds Timothy that he's been faithful to preach this. And so how are you and I to endure in the Christian life? Remember Jesus Christ. He's the risen and reigning Lord. He's in control and he possesses all power. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the fulfillment of all of Scripture. There is no alternate life or reality apart from him. And so Paul turns to Timothy and he says, Timothy, I know you're timid. I know you're scared of suffering. But press on. Remember Jesus. He's for you. And now this morning, I want you to hear, whether you're at the breaking point, or perhaps deep suffering won't come for another 5 or 10 or 50 years, remember Jesus Christ. He's the risen one. He's vindicated by God. He's the long-awaited Messiah. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel's power. Look with me in verse 9 and 10. It says, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so Paul now contrasts his situation with that of God's word. He says, I'm bound with chains. I'm in a shameful situation. I'm a criminal. Essentially, he is bound up on death row, awaiting his trial and judgment and execution. And everyone has abandoned him. And yet, he says, the word of God is not bound. And so the paradoxical power of the gospel is that it's revealed in suffering. God is at work in suffering. This is totally counterintuitive. And this is a part of Christianity that many of us probably would like to forget. It's that Jesus obtains victory through dying. And we obtain new life with Christ through our death. Everywhere else in the world, winning is winning. It's being on top. But with Christ, he obtains victory through dying. And the Christian life, the path to victory, the path to endurance is suffering with Christ. We see this probably illustrated best in Philippians 1, verses 12 to 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So what was supposed to bound Paul up and stop him has given him a captive audience so that the whole imperial guard now knows that he's here in jail because of Christ. And the brothers who were supposed to fall away and abandon him, they're being encouraged because of his imprisonment. And so when Paul says, I'm weak, then I'm strong, what he means is that when I'm beaten and bloodied and with festering wounds, God's power is on greater display. This is a huge point. A couple weeks ago, someone came up to me after Pastor Nielsen had preached on being unashamed of the gospel. And this person said, you know, the reason I'm sometimes ashamed of the gospel and of sharing it is because I just feel like my life is just a mess. 
And it was such an honest and candid moment of wrestling with Scripture. And I'm sure many of us have felt to be in that place. I don't know if I should share the gospel with that person at work. They look like they have it together more than I do. You don't know the turmoil that's within my heart. And what we need to know is this. We're unashamed of the gospel, not because our lives are so great, but because the word of God is true and God is so great. We're not ashamed of the gospel because we have everything put together. Despite what we may show on a Sunday morning, it's not because we're well put together that, because the, that, that makes the gospel good. It's because the gospel is true and powerful and eternal and at work even in our weakness. And so when he says, I'm bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. God's word goes forth even when I'm in chains, not able to travel, do as I please. Even with people abandoning me, God's word goes forth. It is not held back. It may be for us that we're called to step into situations where we are so weak that God alone can be shown to be strong. Maybe you're called to share the gospel with that really hostile person at work or to run your business in such a way that you will suffer for it because you're full of integrity. Or perhaps it's not buying newer and bigger and better things so that you can welcome in an older orphan into your home, which may cause you to be weak, to trust in God evermore. We are the type of people, Christians are the people who suffer with Christ. And we don't show the powers the power of the gospel because our lives are great, but because God is great and he sustains us even in the hard things. So the paradoxical power of the gospel is revealed in suffering. The second aspect of this, though, of the gospel's power is found in verse 10, where he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul recognizes that his endurance impacts others within the body of Christ. He suffers everything so that the elect, those who believe, will reach salvation. Think with me for a moment. What if Paul, after all of his church planting, all of all of his teaching, all of his letter writing, all of his visiting, if he denied Christ on his deathbed? Imagine how much of the New Testament we'd have to throw out. Imagine all the people, all the lives touched by Paul that would be reeling. If Paul himself, who on the Damascus Road heard the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered so much, denied Christ on his deathbed, what hope is there for you and I? But Paul says no. I'm going to endure. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And so Timothy, he says, endure because you're leaving a legacy for your children and your children's children and for those around you and for those who you've ministered to. Our endurance is not just about us. Whether you stay faithful to Jesus Christ until you pass away is not mainly about you. Well, it is about you, but it's about those around you and those who come after you, and those who you've impacted. 
Our endurance is tied up in the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, you are headed for eternal glory and you're bringing others with you. Endure. Part of your endurance is looking to Christ who is risen, is reigning, sits on the throne. But it's also looking around you. Do not throw away your faith because of all these other people who you're impacting. Recall Polycarp, a second century Christian bishop of Smyrna, who at advanced age was burned at the stake for refusing to call Caesar Lord and to burn incense to the emperor. And the proconsul, which is recorded, says this to him, Swear, and I will release thee. Curse the Christ. And Polycarp responds with his famous response, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul said, Again, swear by the genius of Caesar. And Polycarp responds this. If thou dost vainly imagine that I would swear by the genius of Caesar, as thou sayest, pretending not to know what I am, hear plainly that I am a Christian. Polycarp's faithful endurance is an example to all other Christians who follow that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life itself. Our lives are a witness to the power of this gospel. This gospel shows its power in our weakness, but also in our endurance. So how can we endure in following Christ? Remember Jesus Christ, risen one, offspring of David, long-awaited Messiah. Remember the gospel's power. It's paradoxical. It's counterintuitive. It's revealed in weaknesses. And it causes us to endure so that we can bring others with us. And third, remember God's faithfulness. Look with me at verse 11. And we get to this trustworthy saying, which is not a quote from the Old Testament. We don't know where it's from, but perhaps it's penned by Paul or someone in the early church. And it says this, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so the first two lines, we get the reality of our union with Christ. If we are in Christ, these two things are true. If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. But then next, we get a warning. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. This is like Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so this is a warning to remain faithful. And Peter, or Paul, is zealous for Timothy to not fall away like Phygelus and Homogenes or Demas or even later in our passage, Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth. And he's saying, no, do not deny Christ. Do not disown Jesus. And then we get to verse 13, which is surprising. If we're faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
What we almost expect to hear is, if we're faithless, God will also be faithless to us. But that's not what it says. It says he will be faithful. Here, the faithlessness is indicating a momentary act of disbelief rather than the word deny, which is a total disdain or denial or disowning of Christ. And so the reality is if the first two lines of this saying are true, that you've died with Christ and you'll live with him, and if you endure, you'll reign with him, then God will remain faithful. God saves those who believe in him because it shows that he is good and trustworthy. And God cannot deny the fact that he's trustworthy. And this is probably most and best illustrated in Peter, who oftentimes was a little bit brash and bold. But when it came to the denial of Christ, even before a lowly servant girl, Peter says, I don't know. I don't know this man. And the Gospel of Mark records his third denial as this. Someone says to him, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear I do not know this man of whom you speak. It is a sad moment of faithlessness in this apostle's life. And yet, Peter would go on to be restored. Jesus says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Peter would eventually go on to suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. And so this is a great comfort to us because at some point all of us have denied Christ, whether in our actions or in our thoughts and perhaps even in our words, we have functionally denied him with our lives. And yet God calls us to remember his faithfulness. Your ultimate and long-term destiny does not hinge ultimately on how hard you try, but on God who is faithful to sustain his people. This verse almost seems to negate everything else I've said. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. So why try to endure? Because he's he's faithful, even if I'm faithless. And that's not how it works. You and I know that. God's promise to be faithful is so that we can labor and strive and exert effort in the pursuit of God and godliness and holiness. Verse 13 does not enable license or negate the need for endurance, but it actually motivates our endurance. We do not strive vainfully to endure, but we do so confidently, knowing that God holds us. He knows his sheep. He calls them by name. No one can snatch them out of his hand. Many years ago, when I had a chance to visit China, we had a chance to sit down with this pastor. And he was 80-some at the time, and he had been thrown in jail, in prison, and had worked in coal and labor camps for 20 years for planting a church. And at the end of those 20 years, he came out and he said, well, what else should I do but plant a church? This is what got him thrown in jail, but he continued. And so today, he's still alive, and his church runs four to five services and has about a couple thousand, I think four to five thousand 
in attendance in this tiny house built straight up and people packing there like sardines. And we had a chance to sit down with him after his sermon. And he had shared with us what it was like being in these labor camps and in these coal mines. And he said he was at this one particular coal mine where they would push these carts and his job was to pull the pin out and to put the pin in. And he said the day before he got there, the guy that was doing that job lost his finger because these carts come crashing together. And so he worked in that role for, I think, seven or 12 years. And he has all his fingers and he showed us. And the day after he was taken off that role, the guy after him lost his finger. And he said, the Lord has been faithful to me. And he shared with us his life first, Revelation 2.10. And it says this. Be faithful unto death, for then I will give you the crown of life. And so his motivation, his aim, what he lived for was just to be faithful. After seeing God's faithfulness, 20 years in labor camps, suffering greatly, repeatedly and regularly having raids from the police, he says, there's nothing else for me to do but to be faithful and to pursue and to finish well and to finish strong. And so for us this morning, some of us are experiencing great difficulty, whether in our families, our extended families, perhaps in the turmoil of your own heart, or perhaps many of us are doing well. And maybe suffering is around the corner or 50 years away. But whatever is the case, how can we, how can you and I endure in following Jesus? It is a long road. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus. He's risen from the dead. Everything he said about himself, God vindicated. He's the long-awaited Messiah. There is no life apart from him. Do you also want to abandon me? Where would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. Remember Jesus. Remember the gospel's power that even in your suffering, even in the turmoil of your family, even in the finances that are difficult, even in your struggling heart or mind, God's power is shown in weakness. And remember God's faithfulness, that even if we have a lapse, a moment of faithlessness, God holds you and will ensure that you make it to the end. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Bind my heart, O God. And so Jesus promises that. He will hold you until the very end so that you endure until he returns. Let's pray. Lord God, we come and we admit that this is a sobering message for many of us. And we ask, Father, that you would let these words land on our souls in such a way that we would be changed, that we would find hope and life and breath in Jesus alone, that we would be the type of people 
who show that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life itself. And so help us, O God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.